0: which benefits not only lawyers and their clients, but everyone. And moves us closer to the goal of access to justice for all. Tune in every month as we explore new legal technology and the people behind the tech. Here on Law Technology Now. Hi, and welcome to Law Technology Now. This is Bob Ambrogi. And today, I'm going to be talking with Larry Port. Larry is the CEO and founding partner of Rocket Matter, a law practice management application. What do you call it, Larry? Do you call it an application? Do you call it software? I call it software.
1: I like to call it a solution, software. but Monica Bay hates the word solution, so I have to call yeah. it software.
0: I'm with Monica on that. I actually looked at your LinkedIn profile, and you called it an application there. Yeah, but it solves a problem. So
1: isn't it a solution if it solves a problem?
0: Uh, Well, we can take that up with Monica, who is, of course, the co-host of this podcast, but she's not here today.
1: (laughs) Haha, so we can like change everything since she's not here.
0: (laughs) We can call it a solution for today. Let
1: (laughs) Monica come back at us later. Perfect.
0: So I want to talk a little bit about the history of Rocket Matter. But first, what were you before you were a CEO of a legal software company?
1: Well, Bob, that's a great question. (laughs) I think it's a brilliant question. It's a very good question. Actually, I had no interest in being involved in software when I was like in high school. When I was in, I mean, I'm going way back now at this point, but you know, I was like in the school play, I was editor of the school newspaper. I wanted to go, I wanted to be like a comedy writer for you know, TV or the movies. I don't know. I I think (laughs) (laughs) all I knew is I was very creative and I was very technical. I was actually very technical. So good at math and all that kind of stuff. And I, I wasn't sure, you know, maybe architecture would have been a good thing, but film seemed to call me because, you know, it's creative and technical. So I went to Northwestern. I got a degree in radio, television, and film. Didn't really like it, you know. I would go to these like parties that, you know, for like the Academy Awards, where like all the students, the film students, would watch the Academy Awards, and I like that was the last thing I ever wanted to do. And everybody else there, like, knew who all the producers were, and they knew who all the non-famous people were at those things. And I was like, oh my god, I'm going to get creamed in this profession because it's so competitive. So I kind of, um, I became very interested in like, you know, the documentary aspect of things. So when I in in photography, so when I finished school, I. I worked as a photographer for a newspaper down in South America. And that was pretty amazing. That was an amazing experience. And i
0: how have I never heard that before? That's pretty cool,
1: yeah. well, um, and I know that you have like kids that like travel the world and stuff too. So, but I yeah, I was in Chile for a while, and that was that was pretty amazing because I was there, like within ten years of Pinochet being, uh, you know transitioning to like a democracy. So that was a fascinating experience. And when I was a junior in in college I spent the year in Spain. So like I have a big affinity towards like Latin America and Spain and I'm not Latin America or Spanish or whatever. It's just kind of a I mean fact I'm from like a railroad town in Pennsylvania, but I, I don't know how any of this happened, but it did.
0: But it happened. And you must be fluent in Spanish.
1: Sí, si puedo hablar un poquito. Está bien. And I also live down <laughs> in South Florida, so I'm always using it, you know. So, um, yeah, if good. you know, if if we want to do like a Spanish podcast for Legal Talk Network, we could do it completely in Spanish if you wanted to. It's up to you. It's I'd totally have to get my son on
0: for that because I am not fluent.
1: Yeah, we'll we'll have to ask the uh, Legal Talk Network people if they'd be interested in that. But okay, in, in any case, after school, photography, especially photojournalism, just was not for me because I would, um, you know, what happens is is that you sit around, and the stuff that you cover is either way too exciting or way too boring like so for example way too boring you'd have to like go to a a press conference right and yeah. just take pictures of the business guys like idiots like me like who wants to do that but then on on the way too exciting aspect of things like you'd have to go cover a riot and i realized <laughs> that at the pinnacle of my career they would send me into war zones if i wanted to continue the photography thing and i'm like i kind of want to coach little league and have a bookshelf with my books and that's not what i want so I got involved in the uh, film business when I was in New York City. The documentary stuff. I worked for a, a like a IMAX museum production company in Brooklyn, and hated it. And it was just awful. There was nothing I liked about it at all, aside from the computers. And this was the late '90s, and the internet was happening. And I knew a bunch of people programming that were like liberal arts majors. So I enrolled in this course at NYU that allowed me to like take some prereqs for liberal arts undergraduates, and. If I did well, then matriculate as a master's student. And so I did that. And when that happened, you know, of course the internet bubble burst. And all the cool companies, like one way, like Razorfish or Organic or whatever they were called back then, all the cool, crazy companies, they were Gazundhype.com, whatever it was, they were like out the window. I did land on my feet. I got a job at Morgan Stanley. I was doing trading software. And even though I trained with like heavy duty database and parallel computing systems because of the film and photography background, I've always been doing front end fancy development with the visuals. And it's just um, not by my choice. It's just the ability that I have. So that's where I always went. And they wouldn't let me stay. When my wife got pregnant, we moved to Florida. So I had to get a job at a place called Ultimate Software. And I was a software engineer there. And I just got, uh, you know, I, I had the itch. I wanted to build my own. It, starting Rocket Matter at the time was really more about wanting to build the perfect software application than it was about wanting to build a business. Because, you know, I'm a software engineer and it's somewhat of a craftsman type thing. So that was really what I was after. How in the world did you pick legal
0: practice management
1: as an area to get into? So that's a very good question. (laughs) I'm asking. I'm I'm
0: two for two here.
1: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) Excellent, Bob (laughs) from downtown. So um, I I guess (laughs) uh, the way to answer that is that, like, when you're a software engineer and you work for a company, you get paid once to write your software, but then the software company gets paid like thousands of times to sell the software and. When I was at Ultimate Software, which is the company that I was at at Weston, Florida, they had finally become profitable. And the way they did that is because they moved from a license model to a subscription model. So, you know, the old license model where you'd have like a huge, you know, multi-figure sale, like a big sale versus like a steady stream of income. So I was like, well, what could we kind of maybe apply this towards? and. Uh, so i was looking for opportunities is the truth and i just happen to have a lot of lawyer friends And south florida is you know very much of a service economy and they were telling me they were having trouble with their software and their automation and it was expensive and it wasn't very good so i don't want to name any software names and throw anybody under the bus but this was back in 2007 when these conversations were happening and I, i took a look around at the software that was out You can there. safely
0: throw them under the bus at this point.
1: Okay, sure. But, you know, I mean, like I saw Time Matters, for example, and I saw, you know, things like PC Law. And these were things that are, I mean, they solve problems, you know, but they run on like Windows 95. I was a big Mac fan, so nothing was really available on the Mac. They were, they were for older systems. I'm a web programmer. I mean, that's what I trained in, and that's what I'm good at. So nothing was running on the web. Nothing was running in a browser. And I was working on HR software and also financial software. Like that was incredibly secure stuff. So like it didn't make any sense to me why there wasn't anything for legal. Like I thought that I must be missing something. Like I could not believe that there was no web-based software for law firms. So Mm. that's how it happened for the most part. And this was at a time where everybody was already doing online banking. This is 2007. You know, there was... In addition to online banking, I was working on, you know, people were trading online. Salesforce.com was already a behemoth. Like it, it, it was just, they say that the legal vertical is slow to adopt technologies. And if that's really true, and I don't know how that compares to other verticals, but if that's really true, then that's what allowed us our opening because it was 2007 and there was no web-based software.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if all of our listeners know this, but you and Clio launched very close to each other, but you were actually the first to announce a web-based legal practice management software. I think you you announced the uh, beta of it in, uh, what was it, 2008, if I have that right?
1: February 21st, and, uh, 2008,
0: that's right. Yeah. And sometime after that, Clio came along, uh, not long after, I think, a, a few weeks after, came announced the beta of its. So it's interesting. You must have faced a challenge of some kind in selling lawyers on the idea of using cloud-based software.
1: Oh yeah, so it's really funny that you know we beat Clio to the punch, and it's uh, it like endlessly needles them. So I find that that's like one of the most fun tidbits to have. But the truth of the matter is, is that like we had to rely on each other, uh, Clio and Rocket Matter, as we kind of built this industry. When we first came out of the gate, you know there was a lot of suspicion towards the cloud. And I mean, there still is to some extent, you there know, still is. But there still is a lot of suspicion, but yeah. it's kind of it's kind of weird. This is something we may want to discuss later, but we're kind of at this like tipping point moment where if your client asks you where you keep your data and you say it's in the back room next to the coffee machine versus it's hosted at Amazon, then, you know, that's starting to sound better. The cloud is starting to sound a little bit safer to people. So it's kind of interesting how that's going. But back in the day, it wasn't just the the suspicion of the cloud. First of all, let me just say that there's always enough early adopters to get the ball rolling. There's enough lawyers who understand what it can do to their business, understand the risks, people who are really in the know that are willing to take the gamble on newer technologies. And we were able to uh, get started a lot of, in a large large part because of the Mac community. They had no solutions and they were using... Uh, our software, and they were able to run their practices on their Mac. So that's kind. Of, that was kind of like what got the ball rolling. But I had to work very closely with Jack Newton because there were ethics opinions coming up. And it, it wasn't just suspicion. There was, there was a lot of stuff that was, I mean, we were changing some economics, like a lot of money, because the way that practice management software traditionally worked is that the law firms would have to spend like $20,000 up front to get servers, like SQL Server, and get the licenses and install it around things. And and, and it, it just wasn't very good. You required consultants to help you. And a lot of the people that were fighting us the hardest and that were arguing to the state bar associations that they shouldn't be using cloud computing were the people who had an economic interest in the status quo of having the, you know, the major install. So we had to do a lot of information sharing in order for, to get things off the ground. And, and I think the fact that there's um, it would be an interesting story one day to kind of talk about how Clio and Rocket Matter got together and shaped this. And not only that, but the competition between our company and their company has been so intense that the products have become spectacular. Like, I don't know that other verticals have the benefit of having web based software that's as robust as what Clio and Rocket Matter have.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the competition has gone beyond just the two of you, obviously, the number of players in this field. But in some ways, Rocket Matter and Clio have kind of taken different paths since 2008, 2009. I think it was what, 2009 when you came out in your sort of general uh, availability version. But one of the things is Clio has pursued outside investment. And as far as I know, you really haven't done that. Why have you decided not to pursue outside investment?
1: Well, that's kind of, um, I I mean, first of all, you know, anything I say, I don't want to come off as a knock for, you know, anybody who decides to go the venture capital route. No, I don't mean to
0: position it that way at all. It's just interesting. I think that you've evolved in very different ways.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, let me put it this way. So first of all, we were able to, I, I am very lucky that I do have friends and family that believed in me, you know, back when the entire economy was falling apart and invested in the company, right? We did raise private capital, not that much, you know, we've probably yeah. raised like one of what, Clio has raised, but there is uh, to me, I never was a, I listened to the VC guys, you know, they, they talked to us, we had a lot of conversations with these guys, but ultimately what happens when you take money from a, a VC or, you know, any kind of institutional investor is that you become, you have to be in agreement about what your exit strategy is. Like that's what you you're forming a partnership about how you're going to capitalize off your company. And right. I, I was never really 100% sold that that's what I wanted to do or what direction I wanted to take things. They they control your company, you know, they have you do certain things, and we have complete absolute freedom, right? We're a profitable company, we're able to completely guide our own ship, and uh, no one is forcing us to make any decisions that we feel may be counter to what's important to our clients. So. You know, that frees us up to, like, if we really think that we need to be doing this, then we can go and do this. If we want to try and do this, then we can go and do this. Now, you know, by not having the extra money, we can't market the way they can. We can't be in all the different, like, bar association trade shows. And, you know, you don't have as much money to spend on pay-per-click and things like that. So right. um, it forces you to, to grow more slowly. But that's okay with us because we grow at the pace that we can sustain. You know, we get more customers, then we hire accordingly. And, and luckily, it is a subscription business, so it is predictable. So to be honest, it's not that hard to run. I will say this, though, like a, a lot of people that have looked at our company from the institutional investment side are, are pretty shocked at what we've been able to pull off. It's not easy to build a software as a service business without a lot of outside capital, because you know you have to build the subscription revenue over time. And we were just able to do it because we kept our costs very low. So it would be an interesting case study someday, I think.
0: Yeah, it would be. Another way that you've differed, not just from Clio, but from some other practice management platforms is, maybe this isn't exactly right, but Clio has sort of actively pursued a lot of third-party integrations. You have some third-party integrations, but you haven't really gone down that road in the way that they have. You know, there are some other practice management platforms out there that have sort of gone the entirely opposite direction and have no third-party integrations of any kind. What's your kind of philosophy about that? What's your approach to working with third parties in order to enhance your software? Bob, that
1: is another great question. All right. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere, Larry. Perfect. Wonderful. It actually is a pretty insightful question because that is a fundamental choice that a lot of software companies have to make is where they want to go on this thing. So, uh, first off, is that we have our own API that people can program against, right? So, you know, there's other companies like Chrometa and there's a lot of private law firms that program against Rocket Matter to get like specific reports and whatever they want. So, we're open to having our own platform that people can build on top of. Now, us going to other people, we choose to focus on the software that people really embrace and use all the time. So, for instance, we have Outlook integrations, Google integrations, QuickBooks integrations, things like Dropbox and Box and Evernote and Fujitsu. We just we rolled out a re- really sweet integration with them that's pretty good. So, you know, where we think that lawyers are using existing tools, we're very excited to kind of integrate with those existing tools. But in terms of like kind of a free for all integration with all sorts of different companies, You know, the reason that we haven't pursued that is because we haven't heard the need from our attorneys. Like one of the ways that we develop software, it's pretty much a market-driven approach to delivering software. So what we do is, you know, we have a rhythm to how we conduct our business. We have an annual planning and then we have quarterly goals and so on and so forth. But within that context, we have weekly product meetings first thing Monday morning. And we go around the table and we say, okay, what are we hearing from sales? What are we hearing from the customer support team? What are we hearing from the customer success team? The success team is different from the support team because they reach out to the existing clients and see how they're doing. Um, So they're more proactive. And that is what formulates our roadmap. That and what we call our PAC, our product advisory committee. And uh, the product advisory committee meets around once a month. We have a group of like maybe like 20 law firms of different sizes. We also have some consultants in there and we show them what what we're designing. We hear back from them what their pain points are. So it's very much a market-driven approach to product development. And if we don't, like, like one thing that, for example, that Clio has that we don't have is a Zapier integration. We have heard like maybe in the thousands upon thousands of law firms that we have worked with, we have come across one firm that has requested a Zapier integration. So, you know, whether or not, you know, we're, we're kind of staying ahead of them or not you know there's there are certain features where we want to stay ahead of the firm so we want to be like this is going to be a really good option for you we kind of uh, did that recently believe it or not with our payment plans and recurring payments not that many people were asking for it but it's very clear that it would be a good thing for them so we kind of balance those things and um, we just find it easier for the technology level of a lot of our clients if they don't have to configure an integration does that make sense those good answers Uh, Good answer, Larry. Yeah, I don't Um, know if the answer was as good as the question.
0: (laughs) So, given, I mean, you know, this has been a steadily growing area of competition for you. I mean, you know, even Thomson Reuters and LexisNexis have their own practice management platforms. A number of other companies out there. You know, my case, CosmoLex, whatever else is out there. So, do you get asked why you over the other ones, and if so, what do you say?
1: Right, I say that I'm better looking and smarter than them and they should. So the, the uh, no, to be honest, the, the response that I give is that, you know, there's a couple things that differentiate Rocket Matter over the competition. Number one, we've been around her longer than everybody else. I mean, by Clio than one week, but, uh, but, you know, there's a lot of new companies that have been around for like one year, two year, three years, but we've been around, we've worked with thousands of firm all over the country, all over the world. So you know, we've been there since the beginning, we fought all the fights. That's one thing. But to what's important to the attorneys, our time and billing and collections aspect of thing is widely regarded to be kind of best of breed in the industry. So for firms that are really trying to make their time capture more efficient, make their invoicing more efficient, and uh, their collections uh, better and really boosting their revenue, That seems to be among our client base, why they choose us over the competition. And, you know, it's a fickle market. A lot of the people that are using Rocket Matter have used, you know, Clio, my case, or other competitors in the past. So that's what we're hearing from them. The other thing is that they like the ease of use and and the design of the software. And, you know, we're very lucky to be working with, like, amazing designers here. It's a huge thing for me. If anybody pays attention to our company or the brand of our company or anything involving that, you know, and a lot of that descends from, you know, the origins of Rock and Matter. You know, my background in like film photography and um, I, I can't execute a lot of the look and feel, but I can recognize when it's good and recognize when it's not good. So that kind of visual strength of the product has also been another differentiator. And also, I will say that the customer service that we have if you talk to people, is really unparalleled. Kim Byron, who runs the support department, has been with me since day one. And they're just so above and beyond great in terms of dealing with customers, getting them up and running, and having them do everything that, you know, it, it just makes their lives very, very easy. So I, w- I would say that it's, you know, I, I would say that it's the durability of the brand. I would say it's the, um, the superiority of the time and billing. I would say that the design and ease of use and the customer service are what really make us better than the competition.
0: And who's your target user? Are you primarily oriented towards solo and small firms?
1: We focus on firms that are 30 people and below. Although we have firms that have, you know, 60, 80 users, we have larger firms out there, but they're more the exception to the rule. We have a lot of features that focus on the solo market. Like the, in in fact, the way that we look at firms, because, you know, The legal really puts the S into SMB in small, medium business. So, I mean, you're talking firms that are, so many of them are solos. So many of them are twos and threes. We actually segregate our firms, the way we study them, into solos, twos and threes, and fours and above. That's how, it's like Eskimos with snow. But that's the market that we uh, serve.
0: We had an interesting conversation once. And if I understood it right at the time, you talked about the fact that getting somebody to become a customer is one thing, but then getting them to actually be a user or an active user is is something else. And, And that sometimes you have to kind of work with new customers to get them up and running on the platform. What are the challenges about getting a small law firm to really use a platform such as yours?
1: Well, we have a, a motto here, which is that if they train, they stay. And the trick is how do you get a busy attorney? who is you know, fighting so many fires, especially in these small firms, to be able to sit down and focus on the product. The firms that invest in training and invest in doing things will stay. If you talk to people, like, like if you ever hear somebody from Affinity Consulting speak, like Debbie Foster or any, anybody like that, uh, and they speak at all these like, uh, technology shows, they'll say that you have to invest in training. And they're right, because the, the firms that, it, it is really beneficial to use practice management software whether using us or something else. It helps keep firms organized. It helps them run their businesses better and so on and so forth. So it's really imperative that people invest some time training. Now to that end, we have tried everything to, well, maybe not everything, but we've tried a lot of things and we continue to try a lot of things to try and get people to train. So for example, right? The first thing we did was, okay, we're going to have a daily free webinar for people to log into. In fact, it's currently going on right now. It happens like at 11 a.m. every day. Um, So we have the daily free webinar. Then we have FAQs. So for people who are, like to read, I I don't like to watch videos. I like to read things, right? Then we have videos for the people that like videos and hate to read things. And then we introduced gamification into the the product sometime last year where um, you win things based on what you do in rocket matter. So if you create your first matter, you get a little pretty coin. And if you create your first invoice, you create another coin. So we really try and attack it. Did that create incentives? Were were people incentivized by that? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's, it I haven't really seen, it's interesting. I should like circle back around and take a look at like usage on that thing. But yeah, we've heard that people really enjoy it and it's going to help us every time. One of the other problems that we have is that, and this is something that you may experience, A lot of times, when you sign up for a software or you start using software, you use the features that are available at that point in time. And then the way that software works nowadays, as we all know, is that it's a continual upgrade system. But since you had an entry point, let's say three years ago in a given system, you may not be following all the new updates because you're just kind of using what was available then. And you just don't want to take the time to learn anything new because who has the time to do it? So one of the problems we have is letting existing firms like know that there's new stuff there. So now we're like trying to experiment with, okay, let's pull the login page out of where it was before and let's put more information on it. Let's come up with a better system of communication with our customers. I mean, it's a constant battle to keep software user informed of like what they have available for them.
0: A couple of years ago, you kind of branched out into launching an internet marketing service, and then I, I think you kind of you know, retired that, or it, it evolved into uh, something else where you're offering marketing products on an a la carte basis. As far as I can tell, you've gotten out of that altogether. What what was that experiment about, and, and what happened with it?
1: Oh, okay. That's a good one. So that's called internet marketing services. <laughs> yet another good one and here's what we were finding we were you know we're this like you mentioned before we're like this small company uh didn't really have a lot of money especially you know we've been going toe-to-toe with a company that's like i mean not not just clio but you know we have we're going toe-to-toe with companies that have billions of dollars and and we're doing very well and a lot of that's because of our internet marketing capabilities so we're like okay well if we can do this very well Maybe we could offer this to attorneys. And it also happened to be, and not to throw anybody under the bus, but law firms are getting themselves involved in contracts with legal marketing companies that are like uh, really BS and total snake oil. And in some cases they're spending between three and $5,000 a month on these services that are really just like locking them in and extorting them. So there's some really bad stuff out there in terms of like legal internet marketing services. So You know, we thought that we could do a much better job for a lower price point. And we were churning out really good websites, really good stuff, you know, the typical high-end rocket matter design. But what we found is that while we were making a lot of money doing this, we were spending a lot of money doing it. And it was a completely different type of business. So when you're doing websites for people, you kind of need to have a different, like the software business itself, like with rocket matter or another application, it's almost like the pharmaceutical business. All the research and development goes into creating the first pill. And then every subsequent pill is very, very cheap. So, you know, we put all this effort into like doing the the software, but then it's like, it's so easily replicable that our, our margins are incredibly high with Rocket Matter. But with the internet marketing service, which required so much personal attention, um, It was just a very, it, it was just alien to us and it was just too hard for us to run. And, you know, it required our staff to constantly get educated on the latest trends in SEO. We had to constantly like hire to bring in more people for that thing. And also everybody's expectation is that they're going to rank on the first page of Google. And no matter how many times we kind of said, all right, well. You know, you're in New York City and you're, you're a DUI lawyer or you're, you know, you're a family lawyer in, in New York City. That may not be possible. It's very hard to set expectations in the internet marketing business. So what we decided to do was we decided to take all the resources that we were plowing into that and just plow them back into rocket matter. And, uh, you know, that's kind of our ethos. We're not afraid to try stuff. And if we feel that it's not working or that we can do something better, we're not afraid to pivot away from it.
0: We're at a time when there are any number of legal startups. There seemed to be a real surge in the numbers of legal startups. You were a legal startup before it was cool to be a legal startup, I guess. I guess so, so. What if you learned about running a legal technology company that other entrepreneurs in this space may
1: not know or should know? Boy, that's a good question. Well, the one thing I would say... <laughs> is,
0: Man, I'm doing so good today.
1: Yeah. I, I think, yeah, you really are. Um, but I'm like really curious for you to ask a bad question now, too. All right. So... <laughs> <laughs> there. So, so there's a couple things in the legal vertical that are challenging, I would say. Number one is that there's a mentality of, and this is just how lawyers think. And Obviously this is a generalization, but you know, lawyers think based on precedent, you know? So there's, you know, you're taught to think that way, evaluate cases based on precedent and so on and so forth. So a lot of times it's hard to find people who are willing to be risk takers in the legal profession. So you really have to focus on where if you're starting up you really have to focus on where those risk takers might be and what kind of people they are because you have to get the ball rolling somewhere and you have to identify the people that are going to be able to do that. We did it because there was a subculture of mac using people back in 2008 that we were able to work with and that's what got the ball rolling for us. So that that's one thing. There is um, you know, in general, kind of a, a sense of risk averseness. People say that it's a very hard vertical to sell into. Again, I don't know if that's true because I haven't sold to other verticals. But I have heard anecdotally that it is just a difficult sales process in general. So sales processes might take longer. Price points might have to be lower than they are in other verticals. Uh, so those are a couple of things that you need to pay attention to, which means that you're going to have to do things very efficiently. You're going to have to really focus on keeping your costs down and running a very efficient business.
0: What should I have asked you that I didn't ask you?
1: You know, I'm a big reader and I like to think about the future of stuff. And so you were talking about, um, let me ask you this, Bob, what books are you reading? <laughs> what am I reading? Yeah. What, what books are you reading, Bob?
0: Actually, I just finished a book, which has nothing to do with legal technology. I just finished Jeffrey Tubin's book about Patty Hearst. Oh yeah! Uh, what was that? Good. That was excellent. It was really good. Uh, interesting to me because I was growing up during that time. I remember that when that was in the news, when that was a big story. And uh, was
1: she kidnapped? Help us out for those of us that are younger than like forty or something, or, or 50. actually, I'm no longer younger than forty. What what happened with Patty Hurst? Did she get kidnapped? Yeah.
0: She was kidnapped by this thing called the Symbionese Liberation Army. Uh, which was a uh, supposedly a sort of a you know radical leftist military group in the San Francisco area. Really, it was really more like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. It was a, sort of a, a small group of, of people who really had no idea what they were doing or even why they kidnapped her, other than that she was a hearse and had money. But you know, the big question is, she then sort of came around to them. She was she participated in bank robberies with them.
1: Oh so wow. The real
0: question was whether she was brainwashed or not. Uh, this is a, a famous case where she had F. Lee Bailey representing her when F. Lee Bailey was considered the best lawyer in the country. So really a fascinating story. Um, and he really goes into the detail of what happens while she was kidnapped. It's like a year, more than a year that she was on the run and being chased down. They finally captured her in San Francisco. And, uh, uh, and there was this notorious trial and, uh, you know,
1: it's quite a story. So what are you reading? Well, uh, would you recommend the book?
0: I would definitely recommend the book. I found it really engrossing and really interesting. And uh, so what are
1: you reading, Larry? So I finished uh, Shoe Dog by Phil Knight, which is the story of him growing Nike from, you know, the, I guess sometime in the 1960s up through their IPO And it is just a wonderful book. It's hard. I was watching the national championship the other night between Clemson and uh, Alabama, and they all had the Nike swoosh on their jerseys, and they're all wearing Nikes. And it's just – it's so hard to believe that something that big, like, started sometime, you know? I mean, and it's just really interesting to hear the stories. And they never had any cash. It's such a great story for anybody who, like, wants to hear that kind of stuff. And he's an interesting
0: guy. He traveled a lot when he was young, and uh, it's kind of an adventurer.
1: That's exactly right. He, uh, right out of school, actually he went to Stanford to get an MBA. And then after that he went and he went to Japan, he went to the Himalayas he went to all over the world. He saw the pyramids. And when he was over in Japan is when he contracted with his first factory. And what he would do is he would like borrow money, buy shoes, shoes would come over, he would sell the shoes, then he would take those profits and more money from the bank, spend everything get more shoes. And he kept on repeating this process. And so he like never had any credit, never had any cash in the bank. It's like, it reminded me of reading about the American Revolution where like one false move could have ended everything. Like it was so close to the line. The book I'm reading right now, I'd be really interested if you were to read this and we could have a conversation about it. Maybe you already read it. It's called The Inevitable. And it's about uh, a number of trends that are happening in society and technology that are moving forward and how we, you know, and they're not like specific things, they're just trends overall. Like one of them is artificial intelligence. Another one is the prevalence of screens. And it it kind of just takes these basic things that are like underpinning all of our advances and like kind of plays them out logically about how they'll be over time. And it's very interesting. There's some really far out ideas in this thing, like in the chapter on artificial intelligence, the guy is talking about, and I think his name is something Kelly, like maybe Ken Kelly, he's a wired reporter. And um, he was talking about creating a taxonomy of intelligences. Like there's really out there stuff in there. It's just, I don't know that I agree with all of it, but it's certainly interesting stuff to meditate on in terms, and you know, it's important for me to kind of see where things are going and to try and anticipate how things are going. Kevin Kelly. I, is that his name, Kevin Kelly? It's it's le- for me. Kelly, it's yeah. less about the uh, it, so some of it's like you know because of Rocket Matter and my job as uh, the steward of a technology company. But some of it's about having children and how their lives are gonna enmesh with society and what kind of jobs are even gonna be available to them. So that's some of the stuff I'm looking t- forward to reading in 2017. More stuff like that.
0: Awesome. Well, Larry, I really appreciate your taking the time to be with us today and talk about Rocket Matter and books you're reading and other stuff. It's been really nice to talk with you.
1: Oh, thank you for the opportunity. By the way, if anybody ever wants to like have a conversation with me, I'm always open to talking to somebody about cool, crazy ideas. It's Larry at RocketMatter.com. I would love to talk to anybody that is listening out there and wants to have a cool conversation. Great. You're going to be at Legal Tech New York? I will be at Legal Tech New York. I'll be there all day on the middle day and a little bit on the night before and the morning after.
0: And ABA Tech Show, are you going to be there as well?
1: I'll be at ABA Tech Show. That's March 13th through the 15th, I believe. So, oh yeah. Well, we will see you there. We'll definitely see you there. All right? Thanks a lot, Larry. really appreciate it. Okay, bye, Bob. Thanks. It's my pleasure. And that
0: brings us to the end of another episode of Law Technology Now. Really appreciate your listening. On behalf of Monica Bay and myself, thanks a lot for listening and listen next
1: time. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit legaltalknetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS.
0: Find us on Twitter and Facebook, or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes.